you've hit play on The Screen Companion, a show about helping you to decide what to watch tonight. This one, more than others, feels like it's going to be a good discussion. However, maybe it wasn't the most entertaining on an individual watch basis. Pat, tell me, was there a general flavor of depression for you watching these movies? That's interesting. Yeah, I think that two of them definitely didn't end the way that you would expect a regular movie to end. The three films we're discussing are all about real life people, so definitely hard to savor. And John, did you find any of them entertaining or more that pensive food for thought sort of movie? Well, now I don't want to say it was entertaining. You make it sound like I'm going to laugh at people with cerebral palsy or something like that. Um, I mean, I... (laughs) (laughs) You can be entertained and not laugh at people's disabilities. I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) I guess more food for thought, if you have to go that route, yes. Let's jump right into it. Let's start with My Left Foot, John, from 1989. Based on the autobiography by Christy Brown of a boy born with cerebral palsy, and he can only use his left foot, and he does paintings and writings. And it's just a tale of his life. And the movie, I guess, has a happy ending. (laughs) Pat, what was your first impression after the movie ended? Daniel Day-Lewis obviously is exceptionally talented, and this is an older film for him. Still just doing an amazing job. It was interesting to see how his family reacted with him. They surrounded him and took care of him, and then they encouraged him to be better, which is, I think is different than some families would treat a person with that kind of disability. Some people would treat him like they're never going to get better. Like his father, for example, in the film, starts off that way, doesn't think he's going to be smart, doesn't think he's going to be any better, but as soon as he realizes that his son can do things and that his son can live a more normal life or normal-ish life, He supports that, and he encourages it. It's very interesting. The father character, I don't know if I'd ever really call him a hero or anything, but I think he's important to have in there because the rest of the family seems so accepting of Christie's disability. It might come off as too rosy if everybody in the family didn't have a problem with it. John, what made you think of My Left Foot for this episode? Daniel Day-Lewis has always been the quintessential actor when it comes to method and, uh, I don't want to say craziness, because he's proven himself a million times over. This is like my go-to, it's almost a joke movie, my go-to joke movie about dancing, honestly. About dancing? I just, I always bring up my left foot when someone asks me how good of a dancer I am. Oh, okay. (laughs) I wasn't quite sure what you meant there for a second. We needed to watch a movie called My Left Foot. I thought it was a movie about dancing. Yeah, that's the joke I usually make. And then they're like, oh no, it's about this guy who's a really good painter with his left foot, and that's it. Could you imagine if somebody wanted to put together a dance movie theme night, and they go footloose and My Left Foot? (laughs) (laughs) What details or scenes, Pat, felt universal to you. We do follow him from a very young age. It's interesting to see him playing soccer. There's a scene where he's playing a goalie in soccer. So his brothers are basically treating him like he's completely normal, even though he's literally lying on the ground. But he uses his head to catch a soccer ball. 
And I think there's a scene after a funeral when they're in a bar. And he basically starts a bar fight with some of the local patrons who are ragging on him and his family. Like I said, his family treats him very much like a normal person. And it shows through in those scenes. Those soccer moments are instantly identifiable, aren't they? Because if you were his age at that time, you would want to be able to participate in any way that you possibly can. So even if he's lying down on his side and that goalie just totally underestimates his left foot, Mm -hmm. if that's his moment to shine, he is going to use it 100%. Absolutely. I must give it full credit for having a really good opening shot where he's putting the record on with his foot. And I don't know if it would be as effective if you didn't know what the movie was about going into it, but having that already in my head, it just snapped into place immediately of, okay, this is what this guy's everyday life is like. He's using his foot for everything. If you're practicing day in and day out with your left foot, I guess eventually you would be really good and dexterous with it. What stuck out about the depiction of CP? Things you might not have considered about the disease otherwise? It looked like everything was a struggle, but he was willing to step up to the bat on said struggle. A lot of the ways the movies portrayed it like being Irish was a bigger disability than the cerebral palsy was. Like, the mom was just trying to save up for a wheelchair, right? Yeah. The dad's like, oh, we had this money, I could have been drinking the whole time, and you're trying to buy a wheelchair? What the heck? I do feel like it made the movie, I don't know, racist against Irish people. (laughs) Yeah, and when Pat mentioned the bar fight, I'm going to direct it at you, John, because you're this movie's benefactor. Is it just me, or did the tone of that scene shift wildly and feel like a parody. It did. I will agree with that, because it started out somber. Christy wanted to sing songs and, like, commemorate his dad, and everyone felt against him. And then they were with him, and then he started his, let's wreck the joint, criminal empire. (laughs) They just robbed the bar that was, I don't know, nice to his dad for so long. That bartender wasn't even a dickhead. <laughs> yeah, it's just the... <laughs> Both of you guys have frequented many bar establishments, not to an unhealthy degree, but certainly more than I. Have you ever seen any kind of brawl break out like that? Um, I've been part of uh, pretty close to a bar fight one time. One of my friends was very inebriated, and... Uh, Made some comments about some other guy's girlfriend, and he was escorted out of the bar before things escalated to an unsafe degree. It was pretty darn close, though, to a larger uh, problem, but I think the bouncers were on top of that. Thankfully for them, they took care of it. That was the only thing I can recall. I didn't want to be involved in a fight because of my friend's stupidity. You know what I mean? I guess for me, it was more frustration at why are you being such a jerk? (laughs) (laughs) you get all of our asses kicked and how about you john i was involved in a bar fight once it was uh it was a friendly affair we politely got up walked outside did our business and came back oh my god like freaking gentlemen yeah 
It was a gentleman's affair. It was bolstering at the table, and so we went outside. I laid some moves. He put me in a chokehold, and I couldn't escape, so <laughs> I tapped out like a gentleman. We shook hands, and next round was on him. Go outside, have some fun, figure out your arguments with violence, and then just let it go. <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately, in my left foot, the way it's depicted... The music swells like you're having a gay old time. It's just so much revelry with the destruction of that establishment. Do they even show the bartender toward the end of that scene at all so you can get a sense of the destruction? No, I don't think so, because... So weird. One of the kids was behind the bar trying to actually steal the money. Someone else was behind the bar, too, trying to stop a third party from trying to come over to bar to stop him. And I thought a lady stole some cigarettes in that scene, too. Uh, there was definitely cigarettes dealing, for sure. The way CP was depicted, when people mistake Christie's problem for a mental illness, part of the movie is just setting up in his childhood how gleeful everybody is when they realize he's not mentally disabled. Yeah, why would you automatically assume that the physical symptoms and what you're seeing absolutely translate to his mental state. I'm sure I've done that myself. Made assumptions based on tics or something that you see about somebody. The other consideration that needs to be made with regards to this movie is since it's obviously based on a true story and our lead character, Christy, was born in 1932, you have to kind of wonder what was known about cerebral palsy back then because this is 90 years ago, you know what I mean? When he was born. And I think the early parts of the film is when he's what, probably a young teenager, so you're probably talking end of World War II, what was known about the disease, so maybe they thought it was a mental handicap as well as a physical handicap. I think that's something to consider, but prejudices are uh, made sometimes, and yeah, you probably see something or automatically make the assumption that there's a mental handicap as well as a physical handicap. I understand that for sure. And we'll get into some of the happier moments in all these movies. But John, for you, what's the most depressing scene in this movie? Uh, it's got to be towards the beginning when his caregiver, I think she just dies and has a heart attack on the stairs from bringing him upstairs. I can see how he might misconstrue that as his fault. Wait, you're talking about the woman that fell down the stairs and he had to kick on the door to get somebody to come help? Yeah. That was his That's mother. his mom. That was not his mom. Yes, it was. Was it? Yeah, it was. Ah, I could have swore there was someone else. That's still depressing, though. That was very depressing, for sure. Am I saying a depressing part? Take this out, you guys will. It was the ending. It was the final scene of the movie. Because it is based on a true story, and I think you know this about me, Frank, because I tend to look up facts about these films and things like that. So I looked it up, and the ending to that movie does not do the real-life Christy Brown justice, unfortunately. He had a really, uh, rough go, and specifically with the wife that he married at the end of the movie. He passed away in 1981, and when they found him, it was very clear that there were signs of abuse, and he was married to her for about nine years, and they're pretty sure that she was abusive to him the entirety of that relationship. The most depressing scene for me was when Christy, as a boy, in this giant family, you got all these kids around the dinner table, mom, pa are talking, and Christy is just on a ratty blanket under the stairs like a senior cat 
sequestered off to the side while the rest of the family gets on with their lives. He just looks so pathetic. The Harry Potter situation going on down there. They couldn't even dignify his situation to just put him in a chair. To have him on the floor at all like that seems a bit inhuman. What's some of your favorite scenes or performances besides Daniel Day-Lewis? Because we can all agree he's pretty fantastic. He is fantastic. I really like the scene where the mom starts building his room and (laughs) he's trying to help. He's mixing the uh, cement with his foot, and then the dad comes in, and he makes fun of him, and then decides, all right, now we got to build this room. Let's do this, boys. Does it stick out in your mind because of the way it's shot or acted or just the substance of the good feeling you get from it? It's definitely the good feeling. The dad was such a loose cannon. You think he's just going to be mean again, and after he's had his fun, he's like, all right, let's do this for the boy. You're going to call it. Good performance. I would call out the mother's performance, Brenda Fricker, the actress. She did an amazing job. It starts at the beginning of the film when the first time we see Christy Wright, when he grabs the chalk and he draws on the floor, and they think he's trying to draw a triangle. And then the mom calls out, no, it's the letter A. And I think that's the first time they realize that, yeah, he is thinking and that he is smart. He can learn and he is intelligent. And I think she cries at that moment. She's been able to communicate with him forever, and I think she calls that out later in the movie. I've always understood him. I think for him being able to communicate back was so meaningful for her, and it was a really, really cool moment. Obviously, CP is the biggest aspect of this movie, but even without that, it's still quite dramatic, the poverty that they're in and the fact that 13 living children, when you're living on the dole, when you're eating gruel, or porridge, as they euphemistically call it. That looked like some really thin porridge. What did you think of that food shot, John? Uh, That was orphan gruel, if I have ever seen it. Now let's get to the criticisms. Pat, what problems do you have with this movie? I think I have this problem with any movie that's autobiographical or biographical in nature is the dramatization or the changing of details for the impact of the screen or whatever like that. And I think sometimes it can be done well and sometimes it can be done poorly. Like I think in this case, we get a happy ending at the end of the movie where he marries this woman that he's clearly had feelings for for many years. And I think it's sad to know that the reality of that was that she was abusive and that ultimately led to his early death. I always beef with movies over details like that when you've got real life facts you could build off of. And I understand you don't want to end a movie on a depressing note, but Maybe we didn't have to have him getting married at the end of the movie. Maybe we could just end with him winning an award or something. Yeah, that ending, it felt dishonest to me even before I found out about the real story. It sticks out like a sore thumb compared to the rest of the picture. And I understand why they did it, but you can't have such a heavy movie and then just go, oh, guess what? He lived happily ever after the end. Hope you guys enjoyed your popcorn. Bye. Being the supporter of this that you are, John, did you have any problems with that romantic ending? I actually did, yeah. Did feel like a quick, like, okay, sorry we depressed you. Here, look, he's happy. Just a quick button on the end. The third act in general didn't really feel much like a third act. It just kind of felt like the rest of the story. Yeah. We went to film school. We were taught, you know, you gotta have your climax and your new world and all that jazz and... No, not really. It was just a 
Oh, and then he made money off a book. <laughs> if they didn't go with the sweetsy romantic ending, if it was just after his appearance at the benefit, and it's him sitting on a bench or in his wheelchair next to his mom on a bench looking at the Irish countryside, wouldn't that have been just as nice? Because I feel like the movie is really about those two. Yeah, I, I agree. They were the meat of the story, and that would have just been a good ending of him being happy with his mom. Because it's telling his life story, and you can't do so much in a two-hour film... It just glides through the scenes and the moments, and it can't or doesn't hunker down to really make anything of those periods in his life. You're on a train, and you see a quick view, and then by the time you can start to study it, you've already moved too far past it, and you're looking at a new set of trees. I wish it had focused more on one part of his story and expanded on it, like if the movie was just all about his early years or all about him learning to speak. Any of those individual snacks and made them a full-course meal. I don't think we get to understand the difficulty that goes with that, like having to grow up with that disability. I don't think as an audience member you get to appreciate it as much when you just see, oh, he struggled with this, and then he got really good at it, and he did it in two minutes. John, what was the most triumphant or cathartic moment for you in this movie? Uh, I'd have to say him gaining personal success towards the end. It just felt like everyone treated him poorly. The scene when he professed his love to the teacher, and she's like, oh, you're silly. And he's just like, oh, and he has that whole scene. Uh, so him finding happy, even though we just talked about what a bad ending that was. <laughs> Seeing him finally happy, I guess, was good. Finally in a good mood. Is it just me, or does that teacher come off as really obtuse when he professes his love for her? Almost like she's not understanding what he's saying to her, and I almost wanted to scream at the TV, don't you get it? How do you not understand what he's doing right now? Yeah, yeah, she just kind of nod and smile. Like, okay, I'm just trying to get out of this conversation as fast as possible. That is a possible thing that can happen when a rehabilitation specialist is working with somebody I don't think she did anything wrong by being betrothed to somebody else, but it's also like, aren't you trained for this stuff? Shouldn't you be able to see the signs? <laughs> Again, that's what, 1940s, 1950s Ireland? No, I don't think anyone was trained for that. How about you, Pat? Most cathartic? Like I said, I think, go back to the beginning of the film when he learns to write the first time where he writes Mother on the floor, and his whole family is just in awe of him. I hear you, and I accept your answer, Pat, but it also makes me a little sad that it came so early in the film for you. No wonder you didn't jive with this as much as uh, John did. <laughs> no, but I think that establishes at the beginning of the movie his family knows what he's capable of, and I think it sets the tone for the rest of the movie, like when they steal the coal, for example. It's his idea to steal the coal, and it's, really, it's pretty hysterical, and the brothers rally around him and help him do that. But it's because they know what he can do and they know what he's capable of. I think that, well, yes, that moment's an early in the movie really sets the scene for the rest of the film, too, though. Moving on to the second movie of the night, Awakenings. Pat, give us a little summary of it. 
It's based off of a true story of a doctor who has always worked in research, never worked with people, but he gets a job at a hospital with long-term care patients, essentially. And he discovers that there are some patients who are catatonic, if you will, but they're not 100% in coma. He believes that there's still some mental capacity there. So he finds an experimental drug treatment for them that actually brings them out of their coma-like states so they can actually live normal lives. Robin Williams is the doctor. Robert De Niro is the patient. I think it's a great movie. Not only is it an early dramatic role for Williams, but it's also one of the few movies I can think of with Robert De Niro where he's not playing the tough guy badass. I must say, when this movie ended, I was just so emotionally spent. It was such a total bummer of a movie. They did that Hollywood thing of giving Robin Williams' character a little victory slash growth in the last scene where he asks the nurse on a date, really trying to stop what is otherwise a very depressing story. On two sides of it, this is the strongest movie of the night, but also it's the most depressing. It's hard for me to recommend. I think it's worth experiencing, but it's not an easy watch, at least for me. John, did you have multiple moments of intense emotion while you were watching, or am I just a lightweight? Both. <laughs> it, is, it is a hard movie to watch. It's a very good movie. I think I watched this, I want to say, in high school during, uh, we had a psychology class. During your goth phase? Yes, during my goth phase. No, I had a psychology class in high school, we watched it. I think one of the things in real life that I don't think they covered in the movie was the mental development of Robert De Niro's character going from being a child to now a full-grown adult with full-grown adult urges. And I think the real-life case talked a lot about the problems that presented. If you dig apart this movie, you can find something depressing in every crevice. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Pat, when you came upon this movie for this show... What part of it stuck out for you? Both like, yeah, what uh, John was just saying with the mental development there of the characters, because they were children when they fell into their catatonic states. So now they're waking up 30 years later and they're full grown adults, but they're still childlike mind capacity. And then uh, it's all about the disease itself, which was some form of, I can't remember what form of disease it is, but basically forces them into this coma-like state. So it's the physical and mental capabilities being trapped in your own body, basically. So sad. When movies are using real-life subjects, I think in the drama department, they'll beat a fiction story any day of the week because, like I experienced watching this movie, I'm sad the first time around seeing it on screen, and then I'm sad again half a second later realizing Oh my god, it might not have happened exactly like this, but you know these people existed, and they probably had these same problems too. (laughs) Because usually you watch a movie, you go, okay, that was crazy, and that would never happen. And then you watch Awakenings, and they're talking about the treatment not working, and they're slowly going to go back to the hell they've been living in for like 40 years. And you dine on that thought for a second, and then you get even sadder going, oh my god, it really happened to them. (laughs) What details in the movie or scene specifically to you really communicated the illness that they were dealing with? Probably towards the end when they're, like you said, they all started to revert back. Robin Williams' character was just so obsessed with, like, more of the medication. 
especially when he's dealing with the bureaucracy of trying to administer the medication in the first place. It just, it felt like not just they didn't know what disease it was. It felt like the higher ups were trying to write it off. Robin Williams was trying to do something about it, but everyone else is writing him off. And I know that still happens in hospitals now. It's just sad. Like when he realizes that there's more going on than these people are just in a coma, basically. He discovers that they are processing things and that there's thought there. The tennis ball experiment, when he throws the tennis ball and they catch the tennis ball. You know, it's that idea of being trapped in your own mind. At one point, he uses the Ouija board with Leonard, and he gets an author's name, and it's the book about being caged. I think it's a poem about a lion, right? And he goes to the zoo, and he's reading the poem while he's thinking, but it's all about being trapped and no way to escape. That, for me, is an absolute nightmare. So sad and scary. When they're doing the tennis ball test, how easily the administration wants to just write that off as a simple reflex, like some automatic function, and that Dr. Sayer, Robin Williams' character, shouldn't look too much into it. And at the very beginning of the movie, he's being introduced to the hospital, and there's an orderly there that tells them they refer to it as the garden because they just water and feed them and don't expect anything to happen. John, what's the most depressing scene in this movie? Oh, man, that is a loaded question. There's like 20 of them. Every scene. Um, towards the end, when it's obvious to Leonard that he's going to revert back to being a vegetable, that he can't do anything about it. He's at the window, just holding out of the window so he doesn't fall down, and him and Robin Williams have the conversation. That was, I think it was really depressing. <laughs> that was a part of the movie that made me wonder about the real story. I hope they tempered their expectations more in real life because it's already an experimental process. You see Dr. Sayer, he doesn't even know what amount of L-Dopa to give these people, so he just goes from like 30 grams to over 100 grams. I mean, uh, milligrams. I think he ended up with like a thousand, like a thousand is what woke Leonard up, right? It was like over a thousand milligrams, yeah. So I looked up, how much do you usually give per dose, it turned out to be pretty high. But for a second there, as I'm watching, it's like, is he going a bit too far because he wants to help Leonard so badly that he's willing to just up his dose to something crazy? It comes through that he cares and that he actually believes that something will help these people. Whereas, like, I think everybody else in the film has written them off. They've been left to rot and die, wither away, if you will. His character... He believes that he can do something, that he can make a difference in these people's lives. So he's just willing to do whatever it takes to get there, to get that goal. And Pat, most depressing scene for you? When uh, Leonard dances with Paula, he's always wanted to dance. And at this point in time, he's already reverting back to his catatonic state. He just wants to live a normal life, and he's explaining that to her, and then He gets up to leave because he doesn't want her to see him like this, and she dances with him. That's the roughest part of that movie, for sure. So far, all correct answers. I would throw in that montage after the patients have reverted back. And at least there's some change because the nurses have spent time with these people and don't just look at them like no good patients. So they're still painting their nails, helping their hair, all these things that these guys can't do for themselves at all. They are there. They're still in their minds, and 
I'd like to think they appreciate the effort, but to see them talking and dancing 20 minutes before, and then to just see a sea of these faces, it's all these different patients. Oh, and that one moment when the grandson is in his grandfather's lap, and the grandfather is just a living statue. Oh. Oh, my God. Yeah, for sure. Bummer today. (laughs) (laughs) Help me out, John. If you had to take a guess, I don't mean moments that made you actually cry, but how many moments in this movie, you know, your eyes started to moisten up? How many moments were there? There is a lot of scenes. Um, like, do you think more than 10? More, yeah, more. I think if you're gambling and the over-under is 10, do you take the over? Absolutely. If we're using this as a test of empathy... What would you say is too few number of times somebody would get emotional and you would tell them maybe they should go get checked out? (laughs) I'd say if if it's less than five, then I'd be concerned. John, what are your favorite scenes or performances in this? I love Robin Williams in everything. The movie in general made me sad thinking about him and uh, the great loss. Julie Carver there, we haven't talked about this, the nurse that Robin Williams takes on a date, she's Marge Simpson. And that was fun to learn after the movie, I'm glad I didn't know it before. Robert De Niro, I thought, killed it. I was afraid it was going to look bad, but he was great. And since you had seen this, I'm not going to say in your youth, John, because you're still very youthful. (laughs) Yeah. But since you saw it many years ago... Now that you're older and more seasoned, wiser, if you will, do you notice a big difference between how you perceived the movie back then versus now? Yes, I definitely do. As a kid, you're like, ah, that's a bummer. Time to go play. But now, now, you know, it's a definite, I'm more open to the emotional aspect of the movie. It's like you said earlier of just trying to enjoy your meal after the movie or something. I'm like, oh, that did really happen to people. Oh, no. There's an existential dread to it, especially because it's based on a true story. Are there any criticisms you might levy at this film? Maybe some of the administration individuals were portrayed as a little more evil than they probably were in real life. Every movie needs an antagonist somewhere, I guess, and that's going to be the administration who doesn't want to trust the guy that the audience already knows is right. That's how you go into every movie. The audience knows the hero's right. So. True, the bad guys immediately set up to fail. Yeah, exactly. I think I'll end up having to carry the heavy weight for criticisms for this movie. <laughs> That's probably one of the reasons they base these movies on true stories, so it's like armor against critics. <laughs> it's not a total detriment, but I wish there was more time spent ruminating on the fact that these guys came out of this decades-long fugue. Something that felt like a, an unfortunate omission was how the patients and the drug treatment related to each other and what scenes we got of them together. I feel like it was missing to have a scene between Robert De Niro's Leonard having a heart-to-heart, maybe, with one of the other patients because he's going through all these issues and these conflicts, and he's paired up with Robin Williams, mostly, How about talking to somebody who really knows what you're going through? I wish they had more scenes between the patients just talking to each other. I think that's a valid criticism. Yeah, we definitely see the patients interacting with the hospital staff or the folks who 
didn't have the problem, but we didn't see a lot of interaction with them with each other. John, what's the most triumphant or cathartic moment in this movie for you? Is there triumph in this movie? I know, I had to think about it for a second. I found one. (laughs) You found one, okay. I did like, it warmed my heart that Leonard was able to talk to his mom again. Even if it wasn't for long, he got to say hello and goodbye. Because he knew this time around what was coming. I might be crazy. Was there a real heart-to-heart between them? Not, no. That was something I had in my head after. It just, it, like, it just him being able to see his mom again. See, there's another criticism. I wish they had that moment because I thought the same thing you did about it. I kind of created another scene for myself because just logically it makes sense of what's all happening. And I got bummed again. <laughs> <laughs> How about for you, Pat? Most triumphant? Oh, I think the most triumphant moment for me is when Dr. Sayer is presenting to the potential investors, and he's showing the video footage of the patients and everything that they're going through, and then uh, the cutscene where Leonard wakes up and talks, and then Leonard comes into the room, I believe, and that's a pretty cool moment right there, where you can actually see like the results of your hard work trying to save these people's lives, and it's succeeding. And that's only an hour into this movie. It's the halfway point. It's all downhill from there. (laughs) Enjoy that moment. (laughs) Both these movies, first acts nowadays are so quick. And these movies, they just had long opening acts. I think it was 45 minutes before we got to the whole awakening. (laughs) I think the most cathartic moment, because we have Leonard when he realizes the treatment isn't working. And he's a bit petulant for a while there. It's not cool, but it's satisfying. No, I don't know what word it is, but I appreciate that they were willing to show him in a negative light during the film. I think a lot of movies with disabilities, it's like the world is against them and they're perfectly fine and they don't have any problems on their own. So it's kind of nice to see him act in a less than graceful way at one point when he's railing against what's happening to him. I say all that because I think the cathartic moment ends up being when he's suffering tremors at one point, and Dr. Sayer wants to get him medication or help him out, do something for him in that moment. But instead, all he wants Sayer to do is to film him. He knows his days are numbered, and his goal now is to just make it valuable for research purposes. Doesn't he say something like, learn from me and he just says that over and over while he's doing his ticks oh what a freaking sad moment it is a really sad moment for sure but it's also like a moment of strength for him making the best of a really badly dealt hand of cards pat do you have any extra information about this movie well i do have a fun fact that could lead us into the third film actually there you go i think i know what you're gonna say do you know what i'm gonna say So the character of Dr. Sayer is based off a real-life doctor named Oliver Sacks. And Oliver Sacks is also in our third film. He's played by Robin Williams in the movie Awakenings. In the movie At First Sight, it's actually the real-life doctor interacted with our main character in that movie. He's played by Nathan Lane. This does segue nicely into At First Sight. Before I go into a quick summary of this movie, I'm sure people with any understanding of these movies going into it, and my guess after having seen all three, 
probably see an odd duckling in this trio of films on many different levels, and I'm going to say I did that on purpose. It wasn't the first movie I thought of for this. However, I had a feeling that they were going to be incredible downers, and I wanted something that was a little bit more lighter fare. So at first sight, is about a blind masseuse, Virgil, played by Val Kilmer, who falls in love with an architect, Amy, played by Mira Sorvino, and his relationship to the world and himself gets thrown for a loop when an experimental surgery gives him back his sight. Pat, would you say that you're something of a fan of Val Kilmer's work? I very much enjoy Val Kilmer's work. He's an excellent actor. He's had a great career. And when you finish this movie, what were your initial thoughts? Honestly, I thought for him, I thought this wasn't his best role. I thought he did a great job being a blind character, but I also felt like he was almost played up as being more disabled than he was. His character was extremely optimistic, almost to a fault. Played a lot into his blindness, almost overplayed it. I don't know if that was intentional or if that was bad writing or what, but uh, I don't know. I felt like it was over the top a little bit. The making of the movie, or are you saying from a character standpoint that his character was overplaying his blindness? Now, I wouldn't even say he was overplaying his blindness as much as he was. Almost like when he's able to see, it's like he regresses so much mentally almost. It's really bizarre. I kind of agree with that, actually. I thought it was odd the way he acted sometimes. On the reverse side, it definitely felt like they were trying to portray it as nothing was wrong, which is fine too. It's okay to not have vision. Obviously, nothing really was wrong with him. He just couldn't see. When he tripped over the uh, chair, when Amy, when she was over and she left the chair out and he tripped over it, that was such a huge overreaction that I don't think you'd actually see from someone. That definitely seemed to be like the typical of how they were trying to portray it. Hmm. Yeah, in some ways, well, a lot of ways, it is portrayed in a really heightened sense. Using that scene as a specific example, I think it probably was something in the direction. If it was more of a normal reaction, I could see him biting his lip or cursing under his breath. But because it's such a big issue in the scene, so that Kelly McGillis playing his sister can have that real adverse reaction to this new person in his life and not knowing how to deal with blind people. If you don't have that big moment of him practically screaming in pain, then her being incensed at it doesn't read as well or reads more petty. Well, while we're ragging on him slightly in this, I felt it was a bit odd, his choice to smile as much as he does at the beginning of the movie. I almost felt like he was trying to be Tom Cruise. I could see it as um, a defense mechanism. Or the opposite. Everyone was so nice to him in town that maybe he just is like, just leave it up. Someone's going to come by and I got to smile at him. Just leave it up. Ah, thank you. I like that. Justification. (laughs) Okay, so it's a perfect movie. Moving on. (laughs) Since we have been communicating our displeasure at some of the uh, blind stuff in this, are there details or scenes, though, Pat, that you feel do really communicate the condition? I thought they did a good job of showing when he's able to see and everything comes back and it's blurry. Even when he does have, quote unquote, good vision, it's not perfect vision. It's not like he's all of a sudden 
seeing everything. I think they do a good job in a lot of ways with demonstrating how capable a blind person can be. In the initial scene of the movie, Amy doesn't realize he's blind. And the first time she meets him, that's well done because I think people do live normal lives and you wouldn't know it unless there was a good indicator sometimes. Yeah, and then I think there's a scene where he gets disoriented by all the movement of people at a party and he walks through a glass window and I think that seems like something that could actually happen pretty realistically. Oddly enough, his reaction there, hitting that glass, he was uh, acting less than when he hit the chair earlier. Yeah. <laughs> he showed more restraint in that scene for some reason, hitting a giant pane of glass. <laughs> <laughs> head wound, huge open head wound. How about you, John? Felt to you like being particularly honest in communicating what it must be like for a blind person? They didn't show him having any real problems. He was a good hockey skater. He knew his way around his own house, obviously. He knew his way around the town. He took Amy for a walk and showed off all the things, quote-unquote, showed off all the things the town had to offer. And I grew up in a small town. At the end of the street, there is nothing. There's things to physically see, but it's bushes, and maybe there's a farm down the way that smells bad, but there's nothing to see in the sense of discovery. When they get to the end and she asks what's down there, the way he says nothing is so matter-of-factly because you understand to him it's the edge of his world. He hasn't mapped it out. He hasn't walked it forever like he has the rest of the town. So that's just the edge for him. There is nothing beyond that. And she's like, well, no, there's, there's a dilapidated house over there. He's like, oh, well, then you can take over the tour, Miss I can see. <laughs> Get out of here, eyeballs. Most depressing scene in this movie, John. I think just a pure lifetime emotional standpoint, when he didn't recognize, he finally got his eyeballs. <laughs> well, he could finally see. And he didn't recognize his own sister. He no longer knew her voice, even. That was just a complete stranger standing in front of him. And it was such a quick moment in the movie, but the reality of that situation is to be unbelievably heartbreaking for his sister. I have to agree with that scene for sure. But I would say also, I think two scenes for me. One was when he goes to see his father. I think that was pretty rough. So like, he can't even go face his father, one because he's so upset with the way that his childhood was and the memories of that. And then the second time would be when he finally finds, he had memories of vision when he was a child, and it was these clouds that he had seen. And when he finally finds his clouds towards the end of the movie, and then it pretty much immediately loses his sight right after that. That's pretty brutal, too. Yeah, and off of that, when he's already gone to the doctor and gotten his prognosis... When he goes to see Amy and she doesn't know the news yet, and she's talking about taking him on a sightseeing tour, it's a very uh, understated scene. He didn't have a chair-hitting moment where he screams, I'm gonna go blind! They're like hugging and she's talking about all these places she wants to show him, and I can just look at his face and just imagine what that character must be thinking and feeling, and the restraint that guy is showing to not harshen her buzz by just blurting it out. <laughs> we could see the pyramids. I'm going blind. <laughs> John, favorite scenes or performances in this? It's hard to not love Nathan Lane and everything he does. And he's not playing a specifically gay character. Yeah, exactly. I felt like 
most everyone did a really good job acting wise. Val Kilmer, I'm gonna give him good props, even though the smiling constantly was weird. He thought he got hired for a toothpaste commercial. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful smile, sir. How about you, Pat? I'm gonna agree. I think Nathan Lane was probably the bright spot in this movie from an acting perspective. I thought he did excellent. He was very much a small piece of the movie, not in it nearly enough, but uh, I thought his character was excellent. While I will 100% admit a lot of it is put on and really trying to be like a romantic comedy at times when I don't really feel the story should go that way. However, out of the three movies we talked about tonight, this is the only one that really builds the character of Virgil beyond just him being blind. We have his relationship with his sister, him relating to Amy, and then we have him relating to his father and reasons why he decided to do the operation and what he's feeling throughout the movie. And I appreciated that they didn't just stick to, okay, he's blind and that's all this movie is about. There's other themes going on too. Pat, what was the most triumphant or cathartic moment for you in this movie? I thought they did a good job with the ending. Once again, based on a true story, they were kind of true to the end. Because when he did first get his vision, he didn't know what anything was. You're seeing the world for the first time. So really, you don't know what an apple's supposed to look like. You don't know what, you know, what colors are. You can't read. It was cool to see him trying, you know, like to really see him working hard to learn and to become like that full-fledged responsible adult. How about you, John? Most cathartic moment? This is going to sound bad, but when he got angry when Amy suggested a cure for his blindness, it drove home the fact that there is nothing wrong with him. They tried to set up that maybe Amy thinks something wrong with him. Steven Weber definitely, we talked about that scene earlier, uh, where he's like, he's blind? I agreed with him totally, getting angry of like, there's nothing wrong with him. He just can't see the color blue. Well, I don't see an issue with that. He's still living his life. He's still a hockey fan. Hell of a masseuse. Yeah, there's no problem there. And then the vision became a problem, but he overcame that too. So him overcoming that issue was also good. Overcoming his vision issues. (laughs) This damn sight. Oh, thank God, I'm going to lose it again. (laughs) (laughs) All these ugly people. Ah, Take it away. (laughs) Would you guys agree that Mira Sorvino's character feels a bit undercooked? Yeah, I would say I agree with that. I think my biggest problem with the movie is the love story getting thrust right into it. Basically, the movie starts, she goes to this resort town to go on vacation, whatever, and then immediately she falls in love. They fall in love with each other, and I feel like that was really very much rushed. And then, to John's point, too, like, yeah, her talking, like, immediately wanting to fix this issue that's really not necessarily a real issue. You know, the guy's blind, and yes, it's a disability, but He's fine. We see that he's very much a capable individual. He lives very much independently, but she treats it like it's this huge problem. And I think that boils down to her. Yeah, her character being, like you said, undercooked or like kind of underdeveloped. She's this emotional uh, degenerate. She doesn't seem to understand basic human decency on some aspects. I don't know. The scene that really encapsulated the whole problem, not that I think she's the villain, but she has some problems with her perceptions of blindness after her initial massage with Virgil and she has the hots for him and she's going to see him again 
She's in her room. And did you guys find it off-putting when she blindfolds herself and walks around the room like, hey, this is how I'm going to get to know him better by putting a blindfold on. (laughs) That's definitely off-putting. And I agree. That's like part of the rushed love story at the beginning, too, is like she's trying to find a way to relate to him, which is totally unnecessary. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I think a common thing that a lot of blind people do with is no one believes they're blind. And she never did the whole wave her hand in front of his face or move his pencils type of deal that I know a lot of blind people do have to deal with in real life. She's not a complete monster. I mean, it's Mira Sorvino. She can't be. (laughs) (laughs) Especially in the 90s. She was on fire. Something that's growing into one of my favorite segments is Rat. Random asinine. Thoughts and trivia. John, do you have any random thoughts that popped into your head from watching these? (laughs) In My Left Foot, I wanted that to turn into like a crime movie where (laughs) Christy Brown was the ringleader. Especially like... He's Kaiser Sose? Yeah, he's Kaiser Sose, right? He never gets out of the chair or anything like that. I just wanted him to be the mastermind. It was his idea to steal the coal. He was the one, he's like, he's like, rough him up, boys. Like, he started the riot in the bar. I wanted the movie to devolve into them becoming, like, bank robbers. It's almost like uh, the Beagle Boys from DuckTales. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a bit of a villain to him. There's that one moment where his sister has gotten pregnant and he practically calls her a whore. Yeah. It's pretty harsh. <laughs> Got that from the dad. (laughs) (laughs) Irish upbringing. It's not a tourism movie. (laughs) It is not a tourism movie at all. Pat, do you have anything particularly random? Yeah, I guess back to At First Sight again. I didn't do any research before I watched the movie, so I like to go into it blindly myself, no pun intended. And of course, you have the new lover immediately telling the man that we can fix you, we can make you see again. And I thought this is kind of ridiculous. And then he actually goes in and gets the surgery and can't see again. And then I find out after the movie, I'm like, oh, this is actually a true story. This actually happened. So I thought that was crazy insane. But I definitely thought it was going to be more of a film about a relationship with a blind man and how you navigate those obstacles. Turned out to be so much different than what I actually thought navigating the seeing world after being blind for your entire life. My bits of rat for you. So the credits start, and one of the actors' name ends in De Niro. Oh, yes. And I'm thinking, what are the chances this person is related to Robert De Niro? Well, it turns out there's a woman in At First Sight who has a minor speaking part, and she is Robert De Niro's adopted daughter. Also, At First Sight was the last movie the Siskel and Ebert show reviewed based on the film's release date because they ended in 99 and the movie came out in 99, early 99. Between Siskel and Ebert, do you think either of them recommended it? Maybe Siskel. I'm willing to bet Ebert just tore it apart. I'm going to go ahead and say they gave it two thumbs up. John, you get today's no prize. Siskel did recommend it, and they've spent not nearly enough time on it like we have, giving it its proper due. It was like a one-minute segment, and Siskel recommended it because he could get past 
certain romantic aspects of it and just enjoy it on its own merits. And Ebert, he did not like the film at all. He didn't like anything that they were selling him. (laughs) And I think that's usually the case, right? Between the two, Ebert seems to be more of a snob. I think so, but at the same time, I want to say Ebert gave a non-negative review of the movie Pootie Tang, so maybe... (laughs) (laughs) It always comes back to that for you. I'm always going to bring it back to Pootie Tang. A new segment I have is the weakest companion, guys. Weakest this, weakest that. And just give me what movie you think fits the bill. Weakest plot. I'm going to go my left foot. Oh, yeah, my left foot. My left foot. Weakest ending. My left foot. I'm going to go at first sight, out of spite. My right hand. I mean my left foot. Weakest lead character? At first sight. Yeah, at first sight. I'm going to say my left foot. Oh, you're so wrong. Weakest on-screen pairing? Is it Christy and his mom, Leonard and Dr. Sayer, or Virgil and Amy? Virgil and Amy at first sight. Yeah, Virgil and Amy. Agreed, at first sight. Lastly, weakest There's Something in My Eye film where you could go into it with a big box of tissues and not use as many as the other films. I'd say probably My Left Foot. Yeah, I was muttering under my breath because it's definitely My Left Foot. As far as affecting you guys emotionally, maybe tearing up, My Left Foot did it the least for you? I found it a little more happier. It's about overcoming... You know what I mean? Whereas, like, the other two films are, we overcome this major obstacle, but then we also regress back into it, too. So it kind of dampens you up at the end there. I'm going to go with uh, At First Sight, actually. It didn't get me as emotional as the other two did. And now, finally, fellas, to wrap up the episode. So on a scale of one to four, one is not worth finishing. Two is worth a watch. Three worth seeing multiple times, and four belongs on a list. It's good enough to be on some list of some kind. I would give At First Sight a two, I guess. It's worth a look, but it had its problems. My Left Foot is, again, it's a good movie. Do you want to see it again? Same with Awakenings. It's a depressing movie. Do you want to see any of these movies again? (laughs) So would you give them all a two? I guess I have to give them all a two, but Awakenings of My Left Foot should definitely be rated higher. They're getting a 2.5. I'm giving <laughs> Awakenings and My Left Foot 2.5, because you should only watch them once. But they're better than At First Sight. For At First Sight, I would say that's like a one and a half. Between one and two, I would say like... Ah, yeah. I would say My Left Foot a two, and Awakenings, I'd give Awakenings a three, worth multiple watches. Yeah, I am seeing a pattern here based on our recommendations. I would give all of these a two. My Left Foot, it's a pretty simple story. Awakenings, it's way too depressing. Warning to everybody listening, don't watch this movie if you have depressive episodes. Or at least don't watch it by yourself. Have somebody you can cry on. And then at first sight, I think it's worth a watch 
just because of the way they handle his situation in the movie. This could have been something we had in our romance episode, John. It's like if I had to watch a romantic movie with somebody, this would be a nice middle ground for me. That's fair. That's a fair romantic assessment of the movie. If you're looking to empathize with people that live differently than you and get a fresh perspective on the world, make that my final question, fellas. The disabilities in these movies, the way the characters are portrayed, the ways the stories play out, do they feel authentic enough that if you are trying to have an empathetic moment and understand folks? I think they all did a good job. I would say at first sight was, my opinion, the least authentic, but I thought all three did a good job at conveying the disability and helping the viewer empathize with that disability as well. I definitely felt like it would suck to have any of this happen. Um, I think at first sight did a really good job of making it feel like you're going to be okay, but it's still, I think it would suck to have any of this. (laughs) I don't know. I'm not going to disagree with you. You might be trying to lure me into a trap. (laughs) (laughs) 